I was uh, reflecting and have been reflecting a lot this week on the goodness of God because uh, that's what this message is all about. (laughs) It's the goodness of God. And I was thinking, you know, there was a time in my life when I struggled with, um, I hate to say debilitating, but it really was, debilitating anxiety. And uh, when my wife first knew me, I used to have panic attacks all the time. Um, And I kept them hidden from everybody because it was embarrassing. Um, But when my wife found out about it, she was a great encourager. Um, and she wanted to help me to overcome uh, these times when I was facing panic. Uh, and if, for those of you who have ever had a panic attack, it's unbelievable uh, what it feels like. You just want to run, and you don't even know why. Um, but one of my triggers was traffic. And uh, when you know it, I was wanting to go to seminary and was praying about it for years, and I knew that I was going to have to drive through L.A. traffic, uh, 50 miles each way, uh, through Pasadena, uh, over to Burbank uh, to go to seminary, and it was going to take me five years of that. And uh, if you think my heart wasn't absolutely buckled with fear, uh, my wife, again, wanted to help me through this, and so I remember the conversation well. And uh, she has no qualms about confronting me and my sin. And so, um, so she, uh, she essentially said, well, what's the worst that could happen to you? And I said, well, I could get stuck in traffic. And, well, what if I got sick or something? And, well, what would happen to me? Well, God would still be good, wouldn't he? God would still get you out of it. There would be people there to help you. Wouldn't wouldn't there be people that would come and help you? You wouldn't be stuck forever, right? And and she sort of pressed me on it until I finally got around to saying, okay, yeah, Uh, Romans 8, 28, God intends all things for good, right? Uh, To those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I... If anybody has a life verse, I do, and that's my life verse, is that God does work all things together for good. And so um, I was able to overcome the anxiety simply through prayer and growing in my trust of God over the years. And uh, yeah, five years later, uh, God somehow saw me through uh, seminary all those years. And and it was no easy feat, was it? It was... uh, it was a herniated disc along the way. It was uh, several kidney stones. Um, the flu, I had to go over and do uh, midterms with the flu one semester. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, a lot of people get tried during their time in seminary with their finances or their spouse becomes sick or they struggle with the academics. For me, it was my own health, uh, my own health really struggled through that time. But anyway, just a reflection on the goodness of God that, that uh, if you're wanting to overcome anxiety, uh, this is an area you want to study. This is an area you want to invest your time looking into and growing uh, in your trust of God and His goodness. And that's where James is going to lead us today. If you have your Bibles, 
I'm going to encourage you to open to James chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 16 to 18. We're just continuing in our discussion now. Now, remember the stage has been set. Uh, James has been working his way through. He's told us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. And we talked about how do we do that? How do we consider it joy? Well, well, the answer is God is at work in your life through those trials. Those tests are tests of your faith to help you to grow in Christ-likeness. And this is, has, been, has been his argumentation all the way through. Last week, we talked about the fact that when uh, we are tempted to ascribe evil motives to God, that that, that temptation comes internally. It doesn't come from God's test. It comes from us and our hearts. And that was the problem in the first century here, is that these believers, uh, they were ascribing evil to God. And they were saying, God is tempting us to sin uh, while they were going through this season of trial. Uh, And as we said, God uses trials for good in our lives, but he tempts no one to sin. That comes from inside. And so that's the discussion, and now James is going to take a sharp turn. And we're in verse 16, so read with me. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will... He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So this week, as I said, we are talking about the goodness of God. And and what I'd like you to see in this text is three ways to avoid doctrinal drift about God's goodness. And, And we are prone to doctrinal drift in this area. We ascribe evil motives to God or or we doubt his goodness when we get in the midst of trials and and that's when anxiety comes and so I what what I want is the goal would be that we would avoid uh, the trap of self-deception and that we would grow in our trust of him James opens up just by saying do not be deceived why would he say something like that as we're easily deceived. It's that simple. So, the first uh, point here is that we need to acknowledge the basics. Verse 16. The Kind of a simple outline. It's not that hard to understand. Uh, verse 16, acknowledge the basics. There is one very basic doctrine about God that we need to constantly acknowledge. And that is what? God is good. God is good. All the time, in every way, He is perfect in His goodness toward us, His children. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And the only reason why you would give a command like this is because the people are being deceived. They're deceiving the good, they're being deceived about the goodness of God. They're, they're being tempted to ascribe evil to him uh, when their life was hard. 
You know, at the very least, we might be tempted to ask ourselves, and I'm sure many of you have asked yourself this question, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me now, right? We feel sorry for ourselves, and and so we question the very purposes of God. Or we may even doubt His sovereignty and His ability to help us out of our situation. We may sort of take the reins ourselves and try to relieve our own situation by our own control. And in all these ways, I think James is saying believers can be easily deceived. The word uh, deceived here is where we get the English word planets from, of all things. And uh, planets wander the night sky, if you will. And the word uh, planeste in, in Greek means to, um, to be led astray, to be deceived, to wander, to drift from solid doctrine. And that's how sin works. James has just come off of a discussion about how sin works in the human heart, right? And he says we're, we're led astray. You can turn there. Uh, verse 15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's the process of sin. And, and that's how sin works. You can look at Romans 7, 7 to 14. Uh, verse 11 in particular, and it says that sin deceives. It deceives us and it leads to death. And here, uh, James is showing us just how serious an error it is uh, to make God responsible for our temptations. It's a dramatic shift in in James' argumentation here. He, He transitions from arguing what God is not to what He is now. And he's transitioning from the negative to the positive. You see that? And... And just to start off, uh, you know, when we came off that text last week, or last time I preached, I should say, uh, the next line, verse 16, starts with, you know, do not be deceived. And there's a question as to whether or not that goes with what went before or if it goes with what follows. Does that make sense? So he says, uh, starting in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So it could go with that. Or it could go with what follows as we looked at today. So it's an exegetical question that we kind of have to solve. Does it it go with what's before or does it go with what's after? If you connect it with the previous verse, it sort of completes the logic that God is untemptable of sin. Right? Don't be deceived. God can't be tempted. And that man's lustfulness is the problem. And so it works there for sure. Right? Right? However, and I believe correctly, it's a formula and a sort of preamble that the, that the 
early uh, writers of Scripture used to introduce cautions and refutations of some particular error as it's being used here. Remember, as I said, the church is accusing God of tempting them to sin and misunderstanding his purposes in trials or testing. And so James says, don't be deceived. God is good. God is good and he does not do that sort of thing. So the phrase, uh, do not be deceived, is... Do not be deceived is used elsewhere in Scripture to kind of set this pattern for argumentation. In other words, it's a, it's a thought that's going to be introduced that's unique to Christianity. And it's, it's stated previously, and then it's confirmed by the argument that follows. And, and I'm just going to give you some references. I don't think we can look at all of them, but, but uh, look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he goes into the discussion of who will not receive the kingdom of God. Uh, You can look at 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And then the discussion that follows goes along with that phrase, do not be deceived. It occurs again, why don't you turn over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And then he goes into a discussion about sowing and reaping. So you see, It's a formula. It's sort of a preamble. Do not be deceived. And then what follows is sort of new instruction for the church uh, or instruction that they should already know, but that is being reiterated. It always refers to what has preceded, but at the same time, it looks forward to a new and very important aspect of truth. And as we saw Uh, Last time, as I said, God tempts no one to sin, but the reason why is because he's good. And that's what we need to focus on today, Uh, not being deceived about the goodness of God. Uh, By the way, James himself always introduces a subject in his letter with the word brothers. The word brothers always introduces a new topic. So you can look at uh, 1-2 in the book of James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And so what follows will be a a discussion on that. He's introducing a new subject. Chapter 2 and verse 1. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. New subject. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers. New subject. Chapter 5, verse 7. 
Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. New subject. So James always introduces a subject with the word brothers. So what's, what's the truth that James is going to introduce here? Well, as I said, it, the truth of the matter is that God is good, and he's good all the time. And he bestows good gifts, right, to his people. And James says believers need to avoid deception in this area. They, they need to avoid doctrinal drift on this very important point of theology. And I know theology nowadays is a kind of a four-letter word, but the reality is we need to embrace the goodness of God in the midst of life's trials. We need to acknowledge the basic fact that God is not the author of evil ever. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And he subjects evil to his purposes, but he is not the author of evil ever. Now we may, we may not understand his purposes, but, but the problem's on our end, not on his end. Right? We, we may be experiencing or be the victims of evil being perpetrated against us, but the problem is not on God's end, it's on our end trying to understand why. But when I say we need to, um, we need to sort of acknowledge the basics, what I mean is that we need to stick to the truth that God is good. And we can't deviate from that. If we're thinking wrongly about God, then we need to correct our thinking. The problem is not with God, and it's not what's been revealed in Scripture. The Scripture clearly tells us that God is good. You know, the, the early church, they tried to understand God's relationship to evil by using something called syllogism. And the area of theology is called theodicy. Uh, God's relationship to evil and how does he how does he interact with it and such. But this idea of syllogism or deductive reasoning uh, still is around today. And it's applied to this problem of evil. And I'm sure you've come across this if you've if you've ever tried to evangelize somebody and and share the good news with them. or, Or maybe you've come across this in your own mind. But how do you reconcile belief in an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God with the existence of evil and suffering in the world. Right? In other words, if God is good, if God is benevolent, if He's sovereign, then how can there be evil and suffering in the world? Or, said another way, if evil and suffering exist in the world then the assumption is God cannot possibly be all-powerful, benevolent, and good. And that's how the logic goes. They boil it down that simply. But but it's wrong. It's wrong, and it's, it's allowing us to go somewhere where we shouldn't go. If evil exists, God is not the author of it. That syllogism is a false dichotomy. It's overly simplistic. The problem of evil is a difficult one, 
for sure, but we can't drift from the fact that we know God is good. We have to acknowledge that basic truth. Start there and stay there. And don't deviate from that. This is the clear teaching of Scripture as it is right here in this very text. So the answer to the problem of evil has to lie elsewhere. So, so here's my tip for you for the morning. Beware of any teaching that diminishes God in any way and ascribes more power to man. If it diminishes God's goodness and makes man more powerful than God, reject it. When considering our sin of temptation in the midst of life's trials, we need to simply acknowledge and adhere to the truth that God is good and that He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28, as I said, is my life verse. When I get in the hard places of life, that's the first thing that pops into my head. God is good, and He causes all things including things that I might consider bad, to be good. Now, are they fun to go through? Not necessarily. Are they, are they things I would recommend to other people to go through? No. But, but see, the point is that God considers them good for me. Does that make sense? The trials in life are, in fact, proof of our sonship. According to Romans 12, right? You are a son, and therefore, you get to be chastised by the Father. Hebrews 12. Just let that simmer. And what am I trying to say here? Well, ultimately, we have to adjust our thinking as to what we consider good. Right? God is the one who determines what is good and what is good for us because He is good. It's just like Mama determining we need to eat peas or kale. Right? Are peas or kale good? No. They are not. They are not. They're just all wrong. But somewhere along the way, there is some benefit to eating them. And Mama knows best, and so eat your vegetables, right? And in the same way, God knows what's best for us. And it may appear on the surface like we're in a really hard spot. It's really horrible. I'm not enjoying this. But God knows what's best for His children. So we need to adjust our perspective and we need to seek Him through prayer and His Word for answers. But what we cannot do is ascribe evil to Him. It's a gross error. We need to acknowledge the basics. God is good. Secondly, we need to appreciate God's beneficence. And I had to look that word up. But it's a real word, I I promise you. Uh, But it it just means uh, God is good. He's beneficent. uh, It's kind of the opposite of Maleficent from uh, the Disney movie, right? 
Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And what this verse is telling us is that God is the source of all good and perfect things. And there's two two understandings we need to gain from this text. The first one is the nature of the gifts themselves. The second is going to be the nature of the giver. And the language is a little clunky here in the first half of the verse uh, in the original language. It, It literally reads like this. Every gift good and every gift perfect from above, it is coming down. It's a little clunky. And some of you may have a comma in there somewhere after the word above uh, or uh, after, you know, uh, yeah, above, I think is where most comment, uh, most Bible translations put the comma. And I would say after doing a lot of study on this verse, it's probably best to leave the comma out. And the reason why is it puts the emphasis of the verb on the quality of the gift. In other words, the gift by its very nature is sent down from above. That make sense? From above it is coming down is how we would understand that. And it just reiterates the fact that it's from God. It's from God. He's up there. The gift is coming down here is the idea. So this, this understanding seems to fit the author's intent better, especially if you look over at James chapter 3, verse 15. He's talking about heavenly wisdom, and he says, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. You see, wisdom comes from above. And so um, that's the idea here, is that the good and perfect gifts come down from above. They come from God. And the word translated as gift, uh, dosis, and the word given is unusual here in this text. It's not, it's not the usual word for gift. Uh, it only appears one other place in the New Testament over in Philippians 4.15. And there it's usually translated giving. There's no instance of this uh, verb uh, or word appearing as gift in other manuscripts uh, and papyri. So why do I say all that? Well, the point is that the focus is on the act of giving by the giver, not so much on the gift itself. All of this to say God is the giver of good gifts. And that's why I say we need to appreciate God's beneficence. It's, it's about God, not about the gifts even so much at this point. The word good uh, speaks of the value of the gift. The word perfect speaks of the completeness of the gift. And the fact that it's every and all means that if the gift is good and if it's perfect, then it's a divine gift and it's given by God above. Second, the nature of the giver. It literally reads, from the Father of lights with whom there is no change or turn of a shadow. It's an unusual expression. The Father of lights, it's best to actually uh, take this as referring to the 
to the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's the the creator of the lights in the heavens. It's probably not speaking about spiritual light or moral light in this context. In other words, God, who is our Father and the creator of lights, is purer and clearer than all, than, than all of the night lights, and he cannot be accused of tempting anyone to sin. There's no darkness there. He's all light. And he's brighter than the night lights in the sky. That's the idea. So, so he continues the argument with whom there is no change. And this is not difficult to understand. Elsewhere in Scripture, we know that God is immutable. He never changes. I could cite a million verses on this, but time forbids. And so we'll just maybe look at um, Malachi. Well, we won't even go there. I don't have time. But uh, look at Malachi 3.6 when you get the chance. God doesn't change. He's immutable. This idea of shifting shadow, the New American Standard has translated it, or turn of a shadow, tropace. Uh, the idea here is the movement resulting in the shading of the stars from, from an earthbound perspective. In other words, God, who is the creator of all the lights in the heavens, does not cast shadows upon them when he moves because he is purer and clearer than all of them. That's what James is saying. Thus, his conclusion is he cannot be the source of evil or temptation. So what do we do with this? Well, based on the gifts and the giver, I think we ought to have a thankful disposition towards God. Not only is the, the gift divine in origin, but, but I would go so far as to say that we really ought to be grateful that God is favorably disposed to giving to his creatures. If God were not inclined to give, then you fill in the blank. What would this world be like if God were not a giving God? It'd be horrible. We really need to learn to appreciate God's beneficence and stop our grumbling. I think there is an epidemic in Christianity these days, and it is the epidemic of grumbling and complaining. Since God does not change in his nature, he is trustworthy. And this, beloved, should free us from anxiety. Whatever happens to you in this life, there's one thing you can bank on. And that is that God is good. And that he gives to his children. So, as Romans 8 would carry on, who or what can harm us apart from the will of God, right? 
Who can harm us? What can man do to us? What can this world do to us that could undo what God has done for us? Who can challenge a God who is favorably disposed to His children? The answer? Nobody. No thing. So we need to acknowledge the basics. We need to appreciate God's beneficence. Finally, you need to apprehend your birth in verse 18. Read this text with me. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Now it becomes clearer where James is going with this text, doesn't it? Example of God's goodness that He is going to use is regeneration. It's regeneration resulting in salvation. God is the one who saves. Right? The new birth is the ultimate evidence of the goodness of God. It's almost as if he is asking his readers, do you really think God would show you the greatest kindness by saving you only to now tempt you to sin? Do you really believe that? And just to reiterate, every good and perfect gift is from above. He's talking about regeneration. It's from above. Your spiritual birth is from God above. You did not bear yourself. It's not possible. God bore you into His kingdom. And as I want you to see in this verse here, uh, James gives us four particulars about God's involvement in the salvation of believers. There's four particulars, and the first one is this, His will. Now, if you look at the original language, this participle, it's quite emphatic in the text. It's moved all the way to the front, and so the verse just starts out, having willed, having willed God to bring forth us. It's very emphatic, very definite, and it's, it's, it's a volitional thing. It's guided by choice and purpose. It's, it's stronger than the typical word used for will in the New Testament. Here it kind of um, distinguishes the counsel and the purpose of God from his consequent actions. So God counseled among himself, and he willed to do this. That's the point. He willed to bear his children, which leads us to particular number two. Uh, James is saying here that God regenerates people based upon his logical determination and not on a whim. He willed it. He thought about it and he chose to do it based on his divine counsel. Second, his work. The, the word here, he brought forth us, literally. He begat us, as Thomas used that word this morning. He begat us. Uh, the same word is used in James 
uh, talking about sin um, bearing, right? When lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's the same word. God bears believers by the process of regeneration. So this is what James is talking about. This is a good and perfect gift from above. Particular number three, his word. What did he use to accomplish our birth? What was the instrument that he used? The word of truth, right? This is most likely code for the gospel. Believers are born to new life through the gospel. Right? Just look at Ephesians 1.13. Go to the left. Look at Ephesians 1.13. In Him you also, after, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 7. Go to the left a little further. He says, In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. In the word of truth. In the power of God. See, the Spirit works with His Word of truth to regenerate spiritually dead sinners. They're awakened to life through the power of the Gospel. Romans 1.16 tells us that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, Right? So it's his will, it's his work, it's his word, and finally it's all for his worship. That we would be a a certain kind of first fruits among his creatures, right? And this is probably a limited sense when it's talking about creatures, it's talking about mankind, probably not all of his creatures. He bore believers into something, he bore them into Christ into a new entity known as the church that they might offer up worship to him as trophies of his grace. And the the first fruits concept would have been familiar to James readers in the first century, right? The first part of a person's crops and family were typically consecrated to God as an act of worship. And they were offered to God, not just to his purposes, Right? Think of Hannah and Samuel. Right? Her firstborn son, what did she do? She offered him up to God. See, the point of all this is simply this it's simply ridiculous, completely ridiculous, to take any credit for your own regeneration or salvation. I've said this in the past. The only. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. 
one does not bear themselves into a new life. Passive. You're born to new life from above by the predetermined will of God. And I can think of no plainer statement of that than to go to John chapter 1 and look at verses 11 to 13. Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And let me specify this a little bit more here. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And notice the word will. It's it's intended to be repeated there in verse 13, but of the will of God. One author said this, new birth is a term used to describe the new life the Spirit produces when we trust Jesus Christ. It is also called regeneration. But perhaps the most popular term is born again, from the Greek word genao, meaning bear or beget. When we are regenerated, we receive the new birth. We are all born into this world spiritually dead. When God in his grace regenerates our hearts, giving us new life, we become a new creation. God convicts us of our sin and enables us to believe in Christ. And this belief unites us to Christ. And in this union, we receive the benefits of his work on the cross. Justification and forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Is God a good God? You better believe it. How could a God who has given you eternal life possibly be the author of evil? How could he possibly tempt you to sin? How can you not trust a God who has purposed this kind of good toward you? If you have already placed faith in Christ, I I want to challenge you to continue to grow in your trust of Him this year. If you have not placed faith in Christ, then I want to plead with you again to do so while you still have time. God is good, but there's going to come a point where the clock runs out. And his patience will no longer endure. Give your life to Christ. Know the goodness of God firsthand. I beg of you. I'll just conclude with this. Every good and perfect gift is given from above. And to God be the glory that it is. Your new birth is an expression of the goodness of God. All of all his created beings, he condescended to give you eternal life from above.
So when we get into the hard places of life, are we going to cave in to the temptation to assign evil motives to God? Are we going to cling to what we know to be true about God? That He is good in every possible way. He's always good. And His purpose and nature never change. And on that, you can bank. Let's pray.